Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here today. Welcome to our second service here at Valley. I'm the senior pastor here, David Schmaltz, and love to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. We've got uh, a real treat for you this morning, a special friend and brother and a pastor and mentor that's going to join us and give the message here this morning. And uh, I want to give him a, a, an introduction before he comes up here. Of course, you can read most of his biography and, and you know, so how many years in ministry, Michael? Forty yeah, about 40 minutes, years in ministry and just doing so many things. And uh, so we just don't have the time to cover all that, that God has done in and through them. For me personally, it's been very, very impacting. And, you know, you, you probably don't know this, but Michael has been impacting uh, Valley Community Church for many, many years, directly and indirectly with, with our leadership team and, uh, of course, into my life personally. And uh, I served with Michael for 22 years down in Fayetteville at Mana Church, and perhaps you've heard of it, uh, over, what did you say, six different sites in Fayetteville and the surrounding area alone, over 9,000 people attending down there in Fayetteville, and one of the state's largest, most fast-growing churches. And, uh, and then beyond that, Michael has planted many, many churches uh, in what we call the military pipeline. So because Fayetteville, Fort Bragg area, uh, a lot of the folks come in and they PCS to different uh, 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 forts all over the country and the world. And, uh, and so it's been a wonderful strategic thing to plant churches along that so that people, as they've been impacted from Mana, are going out into other Mana churches all throughout the country. And uh, so it's been very, very impacting, very effective, very awesome. And uh, so Michael's been, again, a very dear friend of mine. He's written several books. He has mentored so many pastors and is on the boards of many different churches, well-known churches and organizations. Uh, he has spoken internationally and uh, just have had uh, incredible impact. Like I said, I just can't go into it all, but uh, we, we do some, sell some of his books out of our bookstore. And uh, so here's, I'm telling you, we've got a real treat to get Michael here this morning and uh, to come and minister the message and to speak into us as a church and where we specifically are as Valley Community Church. So folks, would you please help me welcome Pastor Michael Fletcher as he comes to share the message this morning. Love you, bro. Wow, I, I want to meet that, whoever that person is. <laughs> I gave you 20 bucks for an introduction. I owe you for 20 more. That was a good one. I will say this, and, and, and this is not to have a you know, mutual admiration society or anything like that, but I, I do mentor pastors in Europe and also in the United States uh, individually and in groups and things, and I, I've learned a couple of things, and one of the things I've learned is it's really, really rare to find a, a pastor who's leader and pastor. Most, most pastors are leaders and just a little bit pastor, or they're pastor and just a little bit leader. But David is one of those rare combinations of both. I hope you understand how blessed you are to have David Schmaltz as your pastor. I think you ought to give it up, um, how rare that is to have both leader and pastor in the same, in the same person. I, I want to tell you a story, and, and I'm going to tell you from the beginning it's a true story. And, and any time a preacher says it's a true story, you know he's lying, right? But I'm, I'm telling you this to tell you I'm not lying. It is a really is a, a true story. As incredible and crazy as it sounds, it's a true story. And you can look it up. D don't look it up during my message. If I get boring, then you can look it up, but otherwise, stay with me, all right? So on July, July 12th, 1982, July 12th, 1982, a pilot of a commercial airliner, 737, was flying into LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, 
and reported to the tower that he had seen what he thought was a UFO. And when the tower asked him to identify the UFO, to describe it, he said, it appears to be a man sitting in a lawn chair holding a rifle. It's a true story. Actually, it's a truck driver named Larry Walters. He's called Lawn Chair Larry now. Seriously, you can look him up. And, and sadly, other people have tried this. I do not recommend you do this at home, okay? So Larry decided that uh, he was kind of bored with life, and he wanted to get a better look at his neighborhood, a better perspective on his life. So he went to his neighbor and said, I want to I fly up over the neighborhood. And, and to do that, he decided to get a lawn chair and tie the lawn chair to the back of his pickup truck and then go to the Army surplus store and get some weather balloons. Now, you know one of those military weather balloons can hoist a pretty good weight into the air. I mean, it can carry a pretty good piece of equipment. Larry didn't know that. So he went to the Army surplus store to buy some weather balloons, and he bought all they had. He bought 75 balloons, filled them with helium, and tied them to the lawn chair, which was tied to the back of his pickup truck. So then he got in the lawn chair, and in the, he had three things. He had a pellet gun. His was the, the reason for the pellet gun. He was going to float up over the neighborhood, and when he got to the desired height, he was going to shoot some of the balloons. I'm telling you a true story. He was going to shoot some of the balloons with the pellet gun and kind of settle in at the right height, and then when he was ready to go back home, he was just going to shoot some more of the balloons individually and coast back down into his backyard. So he had three things. He had a pellet gun. He had a peanut butter sandwich. And he had a six-pack of beer. <laughs> so at a certain time, he told, his, he told his neighbor, go ahead and cut the rope. And when the neighbor cut the rope, he didn't just float up over his neighborhood. He shot up like a rocket. The first thing he did, however, instead of empty, I, if it had been me, I'd have emptied that pellet gun into those balloons. The first thing old Lawn Chair Larry did, he opened up the, the six-pack of beer and started to drink. He passed out. I don't know what he did with the sandwich. He passed out at 2,000 feet. At 16,000 feet, that's where the, the pilot of the, of the airliner saw him and reported it to the tower. And here, here's, here's the part that I think is the craziest. In the whole thing, this is the craziest thing to me. I, I can't understand this. When they finally got it back down to the ground, the authorities fined him $1,500. Now, I'm just wondering, is there a statute in California law that says you can't fly an army, you can't fly a lawn chair over the airport. I don't know. How'd you come up with 1500 bucks? They probably said, that's the dumbest thing we ever heard. Hurt the boy a little bit. Take 1500 bucks from him so nobody else will try it. But others did. It's crazy, isn't it? Aren't you glad you don't live in California? So, so anyway... When they interviewed him, the local news interviewed him as to why he did it, he said, I just wanted to get a better perspective on my life, and I got tired of sitting around. You know, the, the real question he was trying to answer was, is my life going to count for anything? I'm driving this truck. I get up every day. I've got my job. I've got my vacation. I've got my family. I've got my kids. But is my life really going to count for anything? And sometimes I think we have that same question. I mean, most of us in this room know Jesus Christ, I'm assuming, most of us in this room know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. I'll be willing to bet there are a few who are yet to meet him, and we can help you with that later on in the service. But most of us know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We love him with all our hearts. We follow him. We bring his principles into our lives, into our families, into our marriages, into our work. But sometimes we look around and say, am I really where he wants me to be? 
Am I really doing what he wants me to do? Am I in the center of his will? And we, we often, if we're honest, have those question marks. And we wonder, am I making a splash here on planet Earth that's going to be remembered in eternity? Or am I just taking up space? I want to share a, a story, my story. And as I do, I want to look at Scripture and kind of tie it in with Paul's story just a little bit. And then at the end, I hope it becomes your story. But I can remember in Bible college, I was, as every young Bible college student, I wanted to change the world. And I wanted to be the greatest leader that ever lived. And I thought, you know, I heard all these messages, pray bold prayers. So I prayed bold prayers. Lord, I want to be an apostle. I want to start a bunch of churches. And I want to write a bunch of books. And I want to, I want to get on the, don't judge me. I was young. I want to get on the cover of magazines. And I want to be famous. And I want to build a giant church. And I want to yada, 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 on and on and on and on and on. And I was praying those kind of prayers, and I made my living in those days when I was in Bible college and volunteering in the church and doing various things. I made my living working at UPS early in the morning, um, loading package cars that, that deliver the packages to you. And I rode to work every day with Fidel Jimenez and Tom Seifert. We got to be pretty good friends, and, and we shared life together because we rode to work early in the morning. We had to show up at 2.30, and then we'd ride home in the, in the, still in the morning, having done our job. And and so one of my friends, Tom Seifert, he and his wife, Karen, wanted to have children. They struggled badly. They had five miscarriages. And they wondered if they were ever going to be able to actually birth a living child. And so she got pregnant for that sixth time. And we all prayed like crazy, like it was our own baby in that womb. And like we were, it was a family member. And so first trimester passed. Karen's still pregnant. Second trimester passed, Karen's still pregnant. Now, she's had five, five miscarriages, so the doctor's having her have more frequent appointments than the average person would have and really monitoring the situation. Somewhere in the eighth month, he said to Karen, uh, something's gone wrong. I need you to come immediately. We need to go immediately to the emergency room and go birth this child. And they went and birthed the child, and when Jesse was born, they immediately took him away and put him in the NICU unit, which back in those days was nowhere near as sophisticated as they are today. And Karen could only watch him through the little incubator-type situation he was in. And finally, when they did all they could do, and they couldn't do any more, they took little Jesse, who was three days old, and handed him to Karen. And she kissed him and held him for the first time as he breathed his last. And I remember going to the memorial service. I don't remember anything that happened in the memorial service in terms of what was said. But I do know that what was said to me by the Holy Spirit changed my life forever. And I'll be honest with you, and please don't judge me. Again, I was a kid. I was in my 20s. And I was praying and crying, and, and, and I, I told the Lord, I know you're good, and I know you can be trusted, but I do not understand this at all. This kid is never going to see a sunset. He's never going to walk on the beach. He's never going to say the word daddy. Laura and I hadn't had kids yet, but, but we wanted to. And I was yearning to have some little kid run up to me and grab me around the knees and say, daddy, daddy, daddy. And I, I know Tom wanted that too. He'd been deprived of it five times and now here the sixth. And I just said, Lord, I don't get it. It just doesn't seem fair to me. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And give me a moment to unpack this. Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, Michael, 
Jesse has already heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yours is yet to be spoken. Have you ever had God speak to you a sentence or a phrase or just a combination of words? And when he does, it, it's just those words or just that sentence. But there's an entire encyclopedia of meaning behind it. You know what I'm talking about? So when he said that, I realized right then that, that what he was saying was that he created Jesse, he called Jesse, and he gave him a calling, just like we all have a calling. You, re you realize we all have callings, right? Calling is not just for the pastor. Calling is for the people. It's for everybody. So we all have a calling. We all have a destiny. We're all made for a purpose by a God who made you on purpose for that purpose. We all, we all have that in our lives, whether you realize it or not. And what I was hearing from God was that Jesse's was a three-day-old purpose. In three days, he fulfilled all that he was created to do. And now... He's come home, and God said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And Michael, you got a lot of life in front of you, and your well done, thou good and faithful servant, is yet to be spoken. Now, let me be clear with this. And, and I know most of you don't need me to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway for the few who may need to hear it. You go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you, but your reward in heaven is based on what you did with what he gave you here on planet Earth. Did you get that? We go to heaven based on what Jesus did for us, but our reward in heaven is based on what we do with what he has given us here on this planet. And I began to backpedal right away. Honestly, to be honest, again, don't judge me. I started crying for me because I said, I, I think I may have backed myself into a corner here. See, verses started coming to my mind, and, and you've read these, like the one in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Everyone to whom much is given, of whom much will be required. The more God gives you by way of calling and talent and gifting, you got to answer for it. So if you have less, you're better off. Hello? So I began to, and here the, the verse goes on to say, and from him to whom they've entrusted much, they will demand even more. You remember the parable of the talents? He gave five and two and one. And, the, and so five makes ten. Enter the joy of the Lord. The, the two talent makes four. Enter the joy of the Lord. There's the one who took his talent and buried it. And what did Jesus say about him? Wicked, lazy slave. That's what he called him. You wicked, lazy slave. You knew I was demanding. You knew I was going to exact interest and growth. You knew that when I invested in you, I wanted you to use it and grow it. Now I'm going to take what you have and give it to somebody else. All these kind of verses started going through my head. So I tried to back up. I, I, I was praying. I said, okay, Lord, I changed my mind. I don't want a lot of talent. I don't want a big calling. I don't want, I don't want any of that. I just, just give me a little bitty circle that I can be responsible for, and I'll be faithful with it, and I'll die and stand before you, and you'll study to be well done. You, you realize that the five-talent guy got well done. The two-talent guy got well done. It's not how much talent you got here. See, we, we, we measure wrongly here on earth. We don't measure like they measure in heaven. Greatness is defined by faithfulness, not by acquisition of wealth. That's interesting, isn't it? So I try to back up. And then I realize, you know what? You, you can't back out of this because God already made you for this. You're like 22 years late to back up. And then I started thinking about Paul, the Apostle Paul. And I thought, 
I read this verse, and it became my life verse. And, and I'll just quote it to you. It's out of Acts chapter 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. And this is the Apostle Paul. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. And, and not only is this the Apostle Paul, this is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, which means he's already completed his three missionary journeys. Now, he does really more than three journeys. We call them three missionary journeys, but there's the time to Jerusalem, there's the time to Rome, the time to Rome again, and maybe to Spain. So we're not exactly sure how many missionary journeys he really had, but, but, but this is late in his life. He's written ten epistles. He's got three more to write. He's, he's already done most of his miracles, planted all the churches he's going to plant, unless, unless there's something that happens between the two visits to Rome. We don't know that. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be sent to Rome. He'll be there in prison for two years. He'll be released. He'll do some more ministry. He'll go back, and he'll be killed at the end. That last part we don't have in the Scripture, but we do have from history. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's mature, and he's meeting in Miletus with the elders from Ephesus. And he's talking about how he lived among them. And this is where this verse comes from. Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only. Say, if only. That caught me dead in my tracks. Because here's a guy that wrote 13 epistles, maybe 14. What do you think about Hebrews? I don't know. He wrote at least 13 epistles. He is the first and greatest apostle of all time. And he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race. Now, as you look in Scripture, you know in the New Testament that the word race is a metaphor for the Christian life. So you're on your race, and you're on your race, and you're on your race, and I'm on my race. And that's why we shouldn't compare, because your race is not my race, and my race is not your race. And I can't judge me by your race, and you can't judge you by my race. You all with me? Is this so good that you're that stunned, or are you all with me? Okay, good, good, good. I just got to make sure. Paul said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race. What he's saying is, is it's possible for Paul to die before his race is done. In other words, die, leaving some race on the table yet to be lived out. You go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you, but your reward for eternity is based on what you did with what he gave you. So Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race. If only. There's some longingness in that. He's, it's, like, like, it's like he's looking down toward the future and saying, if I can just finish, if I could just accomplish what God put me on planet Earth to do. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of, of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I'll tell you what, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I began to think it through. You know, this is going to require a radical commitment, Michael. Because, you see, the, the Lord doesn't knock on your door one day and say, hey, hey, I'm Jesus, just came for a little visit. I uh, just want to let you know, here's your calling, and this is what you're going to do, and here's all the stuff you need to worry about for the rest of your life. God bless you. Bye. He doesn't do that, number one, because it'd scare us and we'd, we'd, we'd opt out. Number two, we'd run and try to make it happen in our own strength, and only God's grace can make it happen. Am I right? So he leads us. In fact, the Bible says that the path of the righteous is brighter and brighter, like the dawning of the day. In other words, he doesn't give you all the light. He gives you enough light to take your next step, which means I could, I could, I could double clutch and not take the next step, which would affect the whole race. That's not a good thing. 
And so I began to, I, I wrestled with this because I, I knew it wasn't just a little, a little wave and a shout, hey, Jesus, I'm going to be all in. I, I knew it was more than just what, what could happen at the end of a worship service or the end of a youth camp. I knew that God was looking for something deeper. He wanted to know, are you going to run the race and fulfill your calling and your task? Or are you going to get caught up with all this other stuff? And I remember wrestling with it. Laura and I were married, didn't have any kids yet, but um, she sent me to the grocery store to get some stuff. How many people know what have been sent to a grocery store to get some stuff? Why is it all men that are raising their hands? Because you don't look at your wife and go, hey, babe, I need you to run. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'll do it. No problem. So I was out there in Food Lion, and I, I stopped my car about halfway. It's a big, giant parking lot about halfway because I was so burdened with this biblical reality. And what I was willing to do. Or was I going to let the crowd around me decide? I teach my kids, after this lesson, I taught my kids, don't ever follow the crowd. The crowd tends toward mediocrity. God didn't make you for mediocre. So I remember I stopped and I got out of my car and I was kind of leaning on the door and leaning on the hood of the car the, or the roof of the car at the same time, grappling with this thing. I know people probably drove in that parking lot and said, honey, there's something wrong with that man over there. Don't park anywhere near him because he's got some problems. In fact, let's go to a different store. But I wrestled and I finally, I remember, I slammed the door and I said, I will not be mediocre. If my wife decides she's not going to run her race, I'm, I got to run mine. If my kids are going to decide they're not going to run their race, i got to run mine. If all my friends in Bible college bail out and decide not to run their race, I'm going to run mine. I'm going to die and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Anybody with me on that? I want to die and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. One life-altering decision. And, and, and can I tell you something? If you get anything from this message, follow me. You get anything from him. Because I poured a little bit of me into him. Not, not a lot, but a little. I poured a little bit of me into him, taught you systematic theology and Bible college, church life, all that stuff. I poured a little bit into him, and if you've gotten anything from him, then let me tell you something. You have, you have indirectly received from Jesse's life. His three days changed my life. Everything I understand about ministry and the attitude I take toward which we do it and the way we, we do it all goes back to that life-altering decision. So if you've been impacted by him, let me just tell you right now, Jesse, having lived three days on planet Earth, is still cashing in on his reward on those three days, even during this message. Think about that. Paul put it slightly differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete or all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? The race is the Christian life. He's using this as a metaphor. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run in such a way that you may win. Again, he's talking about you win, 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 you win. So we're not running against each other. We're running against our calling. And it's a daily thing. It, it, again, it isn't like God came and said, here's the outline of all that I planned for you. He doesn't do that. It's every single day making a step of obedience and faith. Obedience and faith. Y'all, Are y'all with me? Following him every single day. Our nose in his back. 
My son, my oldest son, was a pretty good soccer player, played college soccer, and he was younger. So, some guy was, was um, pretty elusive, and so Christopher was guarding him a little bit, and I yelled at him. I said, Chris, stay on that kid. I want to know what he had for breakfast. <laughs> Weren't you that close? Sadly, the kid turned to me and said, cereal. <laughs> Got rebuked by a 15-year-old kid, right? But we want to know what Jesus had for breakfast. We want to put our nose in his back. So he says, so run in such a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. They're looking for accolades and rewards in this life that don't last. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, now he makes it personal. He says, I don't run aimlessly. He changes the analogy. I do not box as beating the air. But watch this. Watch this. But I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Who's writing this? The Apostle Paul. Paul, are you seriously? Are you, are you exaggerating? Uh -uh, it's the Bible. Are you lying? No, it's the Bible. So you seriously, if Paul were here, he would say, Michael, it's real simple. You go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you, but your reward in heaven is based on what you did with what you were given. And every now in life, we've got to stop and take stock and say, I'm going to re-up to run this with every, I want, I want to win this race. In the book of Philippians, same idea. Paul says, reach for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Reach for it. lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I love this campaign. I love my city. You know why? Because God loves this city. And, and, and I love the fact that God's so wise, he doesn't just say, okay, here's the message. Here's the message. You're going to go to heaven based on what my son did for you, but your reward in heaven is based on what you did with what you're given. And you can feel pretty isolated hearing that message from me. But, but here's the cool part. You're not just individual pieces of salt that God throws out into society to change society. We're actually individual pieces of salt in a salt shaker. We're, we're in here with each other, which means your growth helps my growth. And, and your, gift, your gift accentuates my gift. And, and I lean on you, and you lean on me, and together, together, we see you run the race individually, but the task is corporate. What did Paul say? He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race, which is individual, and complete the task which the Lord Jesus has given me. What's our corporate task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. God's great in my life. God's great in our lives. God can be great in your life. Amen? So what's cool here is my race is individual, but my task is corporate. And I love this, I love my city, because it's something we can all do together. We can all make a difference. Aren't you glad the whole thing doesn't depend on you? Aren't you glad God put you in a family? The key is, though, and this is what I'm pleading to you about, the key is it just doesn't need to be one or two or five or ten of us that say, I'm not going to be mediocre, but I'm going to run this race with everything I have. It needs to be the whole family. And then by the grace of God, we're going to build a bigger salt shaker to hold more pieces of salt and make a bigger impact. I thought that was good enough to get an amen, but I'll, I'll, I'll take the amen I hear in my own brain. I'm, I'm hearing myself cheering myself on here right now. 
I consider my life worth nothing to me. What happened to Paul? Did Paul actually receive a reward? Well, Michael, I guess you have to go to heaven to find that out. No, not really. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. Then he goes to Rome. He's on house arrest for two years. Then he's released for two years. And then we know that under Nero, at a place called Mamertine Prison, Paul is beheaded. He probably shared that prison with Peter, who was crucified upside down under Nero. But in those last days in Mamertine Prison, he writes his last three epistles. We don't know how long he was there, not more than months, and not many months. Rome, didn't, Rome wasn't about prisons. Put you on house arrest or they killed you. This was the prelude to execution, and he knew it. So he's in Mamertine Prison. I've actually been there. And he's with somebody who's helping him write. And he writes an epistle to Timothy and then another. He writes one to Titus. And here at the very last words, some of the very, these are the last words of Paul we have recorded. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. And this is what I wish for you. This is what I wish for you. You're there in the last days of your life, laying on that bed, all your family gathered around. And you know the moment is there. I wish, I wish for you to be able to say, I wish this for myself, to be able to say these words. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Wow. I've kept the faith. Watch this now. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. Now, here's the good news. And not only me, but also all of those who long for his coming. Also all of those who say, I can't wait to stand before you and give an account for my race. Wow, that's pretty powerful. I'm going to talk about a movie I can't recommend, which is dangerous. But you'll notice what I just did. I told you I can't recommend it, so if you go watch it, you can't blame me for watching it because I told you I can't recommend it. But I do recommend the airline version where I clean up all the language. It's a movie called The Untouchables. And it's a quasi-true story. Actually, the root of the story is true, but it's Hollywoodized. There really was an Elliot Ness. There really was an Al Capone, the infamous gangster from Chicago. And so the State Department decided that they would have the Treasury Department send an accountant to Chicago. That's what Elliot Ness was. And they would take down Capone because he evaded, he, uh, evaded taxes. The problem was when Elliot Ness got there, he needed to build a team because they needed to get information on Al Capone, but he couldn't find anybody that would help him. As it turns out, Capone had nearly every policeman in the city of Chicago on the take. He paid him under the table. So Elliot Ness was frustrated, played by um, Kevin Costner. Finally, he runs in his frustration into a policeman, and the policeman, played by Sean Connery, is an Irish policeman, Irish cop, who for his years should be way higher in the force than he is, but he's, he's a lowly beat cop because 
he is untouchable to Al Capone. He won't take the payment under, under the table. He's, he's going to do the right thing. And he tells Elliot Ness that most of the cops you're trying to recruit to help you bring down Capone, they're on the take. And so they make a little group. There's only five or six of them, and they're called the Untouchables, hence the name of the movie. But it really is a true story. At various times in Elliot Ness's journey, he's, he's a, an accountant. And no disrespect to an accountant, but he's not a seasoned policeman. And he doesn't recognize that some of, these, some of these doors he's getting ready to walk through, some of these fights he's getting ready to pick, could be deadly. And so at various parts throughout the movie, Sean Connery will look at Elliot Ness and say, what are you prepared to do? Because if you take this next step, there's no going back. And I'm here to borrow a line from that movie and ask you the same question. What are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? Don't get offended. It's a question I ask myself a lot. Michael, are you in this game all the way? Or have you let success and all the other trappings make you satisfied with a life that's less than what God called you to live? Is it possible to go there? Yeah, it is. We've all been there sometimes. So my challenge to you is, what are you prepared to do? Are you prepared to slam that car door and say, I'm not going to be mediocre and I'm going to live the rest of my life for well done, thou good and faithful servant? Are you ready, like Paul, to live the kind of life where when you die, you can say, I, I fought the fight. I kept the faith. I've run the race. And there's stored up for me a crown, the righteous judge, rewards me on that day. Let's bow our heads. I'm just going to assume that everybody in the room wants to be able to pray that prayer on their last day. So I'm going to actually lead you in prayer. And I want to ask you if you'd repeat after me. If you'd say, Lord, come on, better than that. Lord, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish my race and complete my task. Lord, I consider my life worth nothing. It's all about you. If only I can finish this race and complete this task. Lord, my life is worth nothing to me. I'm living for one thing, to finish this race and complete this task and stand before you on that day and hear these words from your mouth. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Thanks for joining our live stream today. Make sure to like our Facebook page. And if you want more information about us, make sure to visit us at our website, valleychurch.us, or go and download our Valley Church app called Valley Church Weldon. If you feel led to give today, you can give on our website and on our app.